So it was like, but it's hard to get across because when you say like kind of former gorilla, current academic or something like this, it's not necessarily evident I'm mocking myself. It could just be like actual, <laughs> like to, 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 it could just be arrogance, you know? Um, or, you know, for, for, I mean, former oh. gorilla, current podcaster, I think probably yeah. gets the point across. Well, that, that sounds like, a, that sounds, yeah, kind of like a sellout one, like the, the, the former, <laughs> former, former gorilla, now academic, or very I mean, pathetic in, in, in the stepping down from, from gorilla to, to podcasting. So, you know. And the stepping I mean, up. The st- you finally I mean, made it. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> former gorilla to like academic is kind of like what most South American presidents are now. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Anyone can make it in South America. That's true. It's, uh, it's even even Euro trash fail sons can make it. They can make it big in Brazil. <laughs> uh, yeah. Fortunately, I'm not big in Brazil. I don't know. Um, <laughs> we, we had a we had a sniper lad with us, a German. Uh, in in Rojava, who was planning to go back to Brazil after to become some kind of security expert, and I imagine oh, yeah. you know, well, shoot, shoot shoot people in slums or whatever. Yeah, so obviously with the, there was a full range of people in kind of the Epic Games international community. Like uh, there was like literal neo Nazis to to completely the other end. Um, but he couldn't fly back to Germany. He couldn't fly through Germany for fear of the security services. And we were in a safe house in Iraq, trying to explain this like in every language we could to the the people who our handlers or whatever who spoke bad english and good kurdish and kind of middling turkish of which we had good english middling turkish and and bad kurdish and we we tried to do it 17 different ways and it, he got a, he got a flight to germany Hello, everyone. Welcome to BungaCast. It's Wednesday, the 20th of July, which you might have noticed means that it's almost five months to the day since Russia invaded Ukraine, which is another defining moment in the end of the end of history, which itself is kind of apposite, as this is the Global Politics Podcast at the end of the end of history. I'm Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And this podcast is also George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe in England, uh, who are soon to be governed by the towering figure of, I believe, uh, is Liz Truss. Liz Truss, who is that? Who is Liz that? Liz Truss, yeah, indeed. So I like that it sounds in- like distrust, which maybe is no in in Liz we trust. Also, I mean, interestingly, I- right, that she's also said she welcomed. So this goes to, into the topic of our uh, discussion today, because she famously encouraged British citizens to go fight in Ukraine and said they had effectively uh, the support. When she was foreign secretary, she said they effectively had the support of the British state. Yeah, I mean, she's she's a big figure of hate and ridicule on the Russian Internet. I can imagine. Yeah. Well, so that, that voice you heard just there uh, is our guest for today, who is joining us for a conversation on Ukraine and its prospects, the role of foreign volunteers in wars uh, on Syria, and the struggle for an independent Kurdish state in Rojava. Uh, it's Stefan Bertram Lee. Hello. 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 It's very good to have you. Um, Stefan, for uh, those who don't know him, uh, he uh, describes himself with perhaps some hint of irony, um, one would hope, as a former guerrilla and current academic and podcaster, which makes him, I guess, either a sellout or um, 
Well, it's a drop down anyway from Gorilla uh, to podcasting. What are you talking about? It's not, not at all. Like, it's an achievement of a great new height. <laughs> it's true. Like, yeah, yeah, you failed at podcasting, so you end up becoming a gorilla. Um, <laughs> gorilla, not gorilla. That sounds weird. Anyway, let's let's get uh, stuck into the, to the meat of this, because we're going to be talking both about Syria and, and Ukraine. And I wanted to just start off, firstly, by making a note that we have discussed the question of Rojava before in episode 95 with two YPJ volunteers, Danny Ellis and Alexander Norton, uh, which is entitled The Fall of Rojava, which came out back in November 2019. So uh, listeners may want to go back and check that out if you're interested in more uh, on this sort of story. Um, but firstly to Stefan, um, I wanted to start off just by discussing something that maybe many of us got wrong. So unlike many on the left who didn't believe that Russia would actually invade Ukraine and thought that it was mainly NATO bluster, and I include myself in that, you were pretty certain that Russia would invade. Uh, so can you tell us why you thought that would happen? Well, the main thing was I, I followed uh, a guy, an American security expert, like pure kind of like um, CIA kind of figure. But he notably was someone who whenever the US started with this hysteria, which they would often do like kind of every spring and every winter, they would say, Russia is going to invade uh, Ukraine. And it wouldn't kind of get out of these, these small pockets of people that pay attention to these certain issues, but they would say this stuff and there'd be various hysterias. But this guy would always say, but the concrete movement of troops doesn't reflect this. Russia has the forces mm -hmm. nearby Ukraine to protect the Donbass if the Ukrainians start an offensive, but they haven't maneuvered enough forces in the area to engage in a major offensive or need offensive actions. And what changed over this winter was that Russia had really put into place the forces they would need to conduct a large-scale operation in Ukraine. And this doesn't necessarily mean they were going to do it, but it certainly meant that it was kind of on the agenda, on the cards. At least they had to present the threat that they would concretely be able to, to do this. And the other possibility was, yes, it's, it's bluster. They're trying to force concessions from Ukraine, but the Ukrainians were not cowed. They basically, at least publicly, they denied the Russian invasion was going to happen basically up until the day it happened and refused to make any major concession, concessions to kind of uh, Russian security demands. So in this circumstances, where kind of Russia's moved all these forces in, they've gained nothing from it. It seemed inevitable to me that these, these tanks were at some point going to roll somewhere. They had to go somewhere. And it seemed clear to me that if they weren't getting concessions, a roll backwards into Russia would be a complete humiliation. And so they had to go forward and invade Ukraine. That sounds like, you know, kind of uh, correct. I suppose it kind of, the question, I guess, that's still left, I mean, I accept what you said, Stefan. The question that's still left, from in my mind at least, is why the preparation was so poor, um, you know, across you know and there were the famous stories of even russian paratroopers kind of ending up in ukraine thinking they were going on a training exercise and then realizing they're invading a neighboring country um and this well, is something it's it's this bizarre thing with kind of uh, modern kind of information because because of satellites you can literally just watch exactly what any country is doing with their military forces unless yeah. they literally do it underground like the koreans yeah. the north koreans um and so the reality was that everyone but the Russian soldiers knew that Russia was going to invade Ukraine, which was, yeah. which was completely bizarre. I mean, I think my my only kind of the adding the adding of the detail is to say, I think that there was and this is a point which was raised by another recent guest, Richard Sakwa, that clearly the Russian you know uh, leadership hadn't prepared 
either its elite or let alone kind of ordinary soldiers for ideologically, you know, kind of into for what was, you know, what was going to be a very kind of grueling campaign politically or anything like that. And that seems to me also to, you know, validate the thesis that he was seeing how much he could get by saber rattling and when he didn't get anything essentially then decided you know like you said rolling that rolling back from that would have been too much of a concession so he had to roll on forward yeah i mean i think to be clear that i don't think it's kind of crazy that russia engaged in a military operation in ukraine i think basically what happened in 2014 was a conflict completely unresolved um and something that had to be concluded one way or another at some point but as you're completely right to say that kind of the Russian public wasn't prepared for this, nor was kind of even their elite who were kind of this. They've still got all these terrible tweets on like, they're like this day, because initially the US said that the US, Russia was going to invade on the 21st. And then the 22nd, all the Russian people were posting like this day of humiliation for Western propaganda. We will never invade <laughs> Ukraine. Like 21st of February will be a day that lives in infamy. Well, of course, the day that lived in infamy was, was the 24th of February when they did actually attack. And, you know, the three days don't matter. The the humiliation was kind of theirs. Um, but yeah, I think the reason that they didn't kind of try to bother with ideological preparedness is they just thought they were going to win. They thought yeah. they were going to win, win, in, win in three days, that the Ukrainian state would collapse. And this was based on what happened in, in 2014. For instance, when they went into Crimea, um, 87% of Ukrainian security forces defected there. And the remaining 13% refused to fight. There was no organized resistance in Crimea. In the Donbass, um, tens of thousands of, of police officers def- defected to the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic. And kind of the forces that went there to kind of shoot protests and so on had to be moved from other parts of the country with local military columns also just kind of joining or being disarmed by protesters. And so from 2014, what the Russians saw was a, a Ukrainian state which was incredibly weak. But obviously, it's been eight years. And in that time, there's been a lot of Western influence and a lot of reforms and a lot of purges mm. in Ukraine, which has completely changed the situation. So we're going to come on to a lot of this, actually. Um, but before we do that, because um, that's nicely set us up to think a little bit about Ukraine, but we're going to delve, uh, I guess, first into, into your own personal biography, actually, uh, as a way of moving from, uh, well, from England to uh, Syria to Ukraine. So maybe you can explain to us how you got from the northeast of England uh, to where you're, you're uh, doing your doctoral research now in, in, in Swansea in South Wales uh, by way of Rojava. Well, I was always one of those kind of um, teenage anarchists that were like, you know, uh, if, if, if I was around 1936, I would have joined the International Legion. And then one day in 2014, um, the Battle of Kobani, was it 2013? The end of 2013? Um, the Battle of Kobani, no, it was the end of 2014. Uh, the, the Battle of Kobani was kind of catapulted, not just to kind of news that leftists look at, but to complete kind of, it was a stop story on all international media for several days um, of this kind of plucky resistance force resisting, because this is a time where the Islamic State had just been kind of winning every battle they engaged in. The kind of Iraqi army was dissolving before them, Um, It seemed like they were going to basically knock on the gates of Baghdad and we didn't know what the answer would be there, you know. Um, And then they got to a small Kurdish town of Kobani and they found themselves frozen and stuck and unable to progress or only able to progress very slowly over over months of work. And then eventually, with the help of U.S. airstrikes, 
uh, we're able to turn the tide there. And obviously kind of the political dimensions of this force were elided in Western media, apart from, you know, completely surface level facts of like, oh, wow, look, it's women. Um, mm-hmm. but obviously, I then kind of looked this organization up. I actually heard of them earlier in the year from looking on Wikipedia. <laughs> I just got on Wikipedia and, and looked at all the lists of uh, that, factions. That's, that's how people get radicalized. So, you know, watch out, kids. Or, and, or indeed, Wikipedia. watch out for your kids if you have kids. If they're on Wikipedia, you don't know what might happen. But yeah, I was like, oh, my, my Spain has come along. Uh, so it's, you know, I'm going to go. And as a kind of like an absolutely pathologically uh, leftist kind of teenager, that made complete sense to me. Um, so when you, how old were you then when you left for Rojava? So this was when I was 19, but I was, I said to myself, I was going to graduate first. Uh, and so I graduated and then I went. And when you say like, um, you know, your familiarity with the history of the Spanish Civil War, was that like a kind of a family folk memory or is that something you picked up kind of from self-education? No, it's, it's just something from, yeah, from, from the internet, from online radicalization. Though actually it was something, um, my grandma just barely remembers that. And so when I was trying to orientate what I did and explain what I did, I did explain it to my grandma via that. Yeah, so I mean, actually in, in Rajav, I mean, did you see much fighting yourself? I think that's always the kind of salacious details that, uh, that people want to know. No, no, I just hung out. <laughs> the, the, no, like a pathological leftist just ended up hanging out you know the uh, the greatest danger to me were kind of um local viruses so uh, it wasn't kind of a, a thing of you know there's kind of a, a a false story which still goes around and around that kind of international volunteers with yepage like weren't allowed to fight that they were just there for kind of propaganda purposes and whatever and on some level we were kind of there for propaganda purposes but also basically everyone fought really hard to fight and we took absolutely like across there was only a few hundred volunteers and something around 60 50 to 60 of them died um so that's kind of a 20 percent death rate which is absolutely stunning for any kind of um mm. military unit but um yeah i went to i was asked if i wanted to go on a combat mission to the capital of the islamic state uh Ra- in raqqa a few months after i got there um, and i was like yeah sure um, so I went to our forward operating base of the International Freedom Battalion, which is kind of very directly taking its inspiration from the, the 1936 um, International Battalion. And um, I was there for a while and they're like, Stefan, in like two days, you're going to go with about one third of our guys and, and women and uh, take a point inside the city and hold it. I was like, OK. And then basically, I think that night or the, or the next day, I became really quite ill with um typhoid though i didn't know it at the time um and basically i couldn't really walk more than 100 meters or anything like this so yeah the mission was called off for me and i went off to hospital oh yeah i mean well that's that's quite similar to an experience that phil had yesterday when he had heat stroke at the beach and he didn't know it until until later (laughs) you were such a dick (laughs) he he sold it on very valiantly (laughs) stayed stayed at the beach then um, but back back to the story i mean i guess um it'd be interesting to know also a little bit about other western volunteers in your unit and actually just to make a, a a kind of brief parenthesis here i guess we can foreshadow this that there's a film being made about uh well about your story there um and so maybe you can also tell us a little bit about that too i can't well obviously i mean i know all the details of the movie but i can't really tell you about them okay no well that's did good you, that, that, that that's a good tease actually to, to listeners so they'll be did intrigued you re- did you read the press release 
I did read the press release. Yeah. So the, the press release is interesting because it is very strange. I hadn't considered this, but obviously I probably should have. But the, the press release positions the movie as kind of half of it is kind of about a young person from kind of like an, an online culture uh, who goes to kind of experience like the real thing or whatever. But half of it is very much focused on it being like the first big uh, biopic film about a non-binary person. Which I didn't expect, but only because I'm stupid. Like obviously, yeah, I should have expected well, that. <laughs> it'll 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 tie into to all the obvious kind of uh, you know hot topic issues for internet people. Um, and but... you were you were wondering about the other people in my unit. Yeah. So I was with this. I was in this communist unit in in Raqqa. Um, but even then, within this unit, it kind of wasn't. Um, entirely unified and there was kind of just random westerners who'd happened to end up there and the most notable example of this is one guy that we were with was when he left us he was leaving us to go join the lapd oh wow so i mean what one how's, one how's the, he how's darling, he getting on the darling of the left the and... <laughs> yeah pretty good could, what could you tell us a bit more about the kind of you know the political currents maybe in the communist um the communist unit so you know is it like was it mainly anarchist kind of people or was you know were there some trotskyists some kind of old-fashioned kind of stalinists um was it or was it kind of people who leaned left but were you know kind of apolitical but were there for adventure so the basic philosophy of yakuga international at the time and this kind of 2017 when i went was kind of the peak of numbers of western volunteers there even though the number was still not very high, but maybe it was topped out like a, a hundred of us, maybe at most, uh, during this very peak period. Um, there was kind of the idea of Yekbege that either you have military experience and we can teach you, we can give you a political education, or you'll already have some kind of political education and we can give you a primarily military education. Um, so we were split quite evenly between kind of... Um, leftists of various kinds and then kind of relatively apolitical or kind of even even quite right-wing people who come to Rajab for various reasons to fight the Islamic State or because they saw something in Rajab which was positive even if it wasn't leftist. For instance, I know kind of libertarians, like kind of right-wing American libertarians who went there. Um, you know Rajab doesn't have driving licenses? Oh, yeah. Utopia right there, I guess. Yeah. Um, so my unit my kind of class, my graduating class of, of at boot camp or whatever you want to call it, was split pretty much evenly between the two. Um, but we had, we were, including myself, because I was an anarchist at the time, um, there was like four other anarchists and then one guy who was like um, a Bernie bro. All right. Who'd grown up and always wanted to be a US Marine. But then <laughs> as like when he, when he came of age, he, turned, he like realized that the US military sucked. Uh, and we're like evil and so on, you know. Um, and so he was like, damn, I guess I don't get to join the military. But then he read um, Brace, Brace Belden's interview with uh, Rolling Stone and then listened to that Chapo episode. And was like, oh, wow, there is like kind of like a, a non-evil military voice, uh, military unit I can go join. And so he came to Rojava. And then kind of, yeah, the other half of our unit were uh, non-political guys. You mentioned um, Nazis kind of who went to join, presumably to fight um, because they wanted to fight Muslims. Can you tell us a bit more about them? Did you get to know any of them or understand their motivations and their politics? No, so I, I didn't meet. Um, I know there was kind of two guys who 
were fascist. One guy uh, was killed in action, so I'm, I'm not going to say anything about him because it would obviously it wouldn't be very nice. But I'm not going to say anything about him because he's a martyr. Um, and then the other guy was a fascist, is a fascist, and he's one of the very few Yepigay international volunteers who's turned traitor. I think oh, it's, yeah. it might just be him. Um, but what do he's, you mean turn traitor? Like he's collaborated with Turkish state media. No way. No. Um, to like kind of uh, make a documentary about how bad it is in Yepige or, or things like this. Maybe in wow. a more appropriate, yeah, more appropriate place for him. Uh, and where was he? Where was just out of interest? Where was he from? And you know, kind of, did he have? Was he linked with an explicit kind of uh, political group? Do you know? Or he was an, he was a German American. It's quite bizarre. He's like he became like a really bitter, bitter person. But he's like like living like he's married with kids in germany and it, it's just so bizarre that he's like the kind of the most bitter traitorous individual out there really mm. yeah, i mean i guess that's the thing in it's not such an obvious struggle i mean certainly looking back from today to the spanish civil war where the lines appeared much more clear uh, although that might be the benefit of hindsight but certainly with rajava i mean they can pull in all sorts of people, as, as you sort of described. So it's, I guess, interesting to get a little bit of a sense of who, you know, who, what type of person is is going there, what their politics are, or indeed if they are particularly politicized or not. And I guess we're going to come on to discuss this a little bit in reference to Ukraine too, which is also the site for for various international volunteers. Um, but just a couple of like other details, which uh, I think we were interested in, in hearing about just in terms of the mechanics of how this works, you know, the mechanics of, uh, of foreign fighters. So how did you get to, I mean, this is obviously without, you know, breaking any uh, confidences, revealing any incriminating details. How did you get to Rojava from Britain and vice versa as well? Um, so first, why did I first traveled to Greece um, like months, months before I left, because I thought there was much lower chance of kind of interference from the security services there. While well, kind of Britain mm. has been quite active on this. So before I even contacted Yek again anyway, I left Britain. So that even if I kind of fucked up the security email or whatever, they couldn't get me because I'm not fucking there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and to join Yek again back then, all you had to do was send an email. Um, so you'd send an email on kind of an encrypted uh, server um, saying, you know, an outline and kind of like a brief biography of you, if you had military experience, if you were part of left movements, if you'd been in, involved in Kurdish struggles and this kind of thing. What, um, what did you tell them, given you couldn't tell them you were a former guerrilla and current podcaster? Uh, well, I mean, I talked about kind of um, uh, my kind of previous times, my kind of participation in kind of uh, militant actions in, in Greece as an anarchist, which... I'm not going to outline to you now. <laughs> All right. Uh, and then and then from Greece, I guess you, where do you go? Do you go to Turkey? Well, no, sorry, I wanted oh. to, because then they'll send you back an email, which is this incredibly long questionnaire, which included a link to like a personality test, like an online yeah. personality test, which specifically was like a, a personality disorder test. Yeah. Just like trying to Sensible. test if you, yeah. if you were like a sociopath or whatever. So it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a Myers Briggs. What sort of what personality we we need more ENTJs or whatever it is <laughs> no, to balance out the the battalion. No, but no, the, it's on the same website which hosts these. Though I think they deleted it because I, I searched. I tried to search for it later to try and post it as kind of like the official Yepigay um, personality test. Um, but no, kind of they were they were testing for sociopaths. But the thing is, 
it only worked that you had to then copy paste your results back into the thing. So if you're a sociopath, you'd have to be very stupid or very honest to then actually tell them that, yeah, I got really high on the sociopath calculator. <laughs> or to have completely mis misunderstood what they wanted, as if kind of they wanted sociopaths because, you know, they can kill better. Or right, right. Who know, You never know. Yeah. Um, but then that's, that, that's probably a person who's so stupid that, uh, you know, probably wouldn't want them anyway. Um, but anyway, so, you know, I, I presuming you passed the, uh, the personality test. So what happened next? Uh, they were like, send a, send a photo of you. And I think that definitely helped because I sent a photo of me, um, kind of, at well, they thought the picture was of, of me in Bakua, which was, uh, uh, which is Northern Kurdistan, which is Turkey. Cause it was just like this massive array of Kurds, like PKK flags everywhere and so on. Uh, but actually I was just in Greece. <laughs> um so i sent them that and they were like yeah just buy a ticket um arrive in this month to sulemania in the kurdish region of iraq and definitely don't buy a ticket to erbil which is controlled by a different faction of kind of the bourgeois yeah. uh, kurdish movement um and so i flew from athens to germany spent a long weekend in berlin with a friend uh and then i took the bus to munich and i uh, flew to iraq Oh, well, yeah. So it, quite a quite a convoluted uh, passage there. And I guess getting back as well presents all sorts of problems. Um, Did you have yeah. to, presumably, you had to evade kind of security, security service interest on the way back, right? Oh, I didn't evade it. I was just, they just got me. So was it you were stopped at Heathrow or what? How did it work? Well, should I finish the story of getting to Rojava? Because I'm obviously... I'm... Sorry, I, I, assumed, I assumed it was... No, no, From no, Soleimania, it was clear. No, please no, no, carry on. This is the hard bit, because getting to Soleimania just involves flying there. You know, that's a piece of piss. But the problem is then illegally immigrating into Syria. And so obviously this right. kind of later on, it has to be elided a bit. Um, but yeah, I got picked up in Soleimania, brought to a safe house. Um, and then one morning they were like, we're going. So we got in the car. Uh, we were driven by like a local civilian patriot, um, kind of like through rural areas as if we were going like uh, to view the beauty spots or whatever, because Kurdish Iraq gets like a, a decent number of tourists. Mm. Um, we got to the border or got near to the border. We dismounted and then we kind of, uh, we met up with um, Kurdish people who were going there, including um, a woman from London, which I will give no further details about, but that was very interesting. Um, we marched near to the border. Um, we kind of crossed rivers on like, <laughs> we crossed the, uh, the Tigris river. In fact, one of the most famous rivers in the world on kind of horribly over filled rubber inflatable boats. We got across the river, you know, there was helicopters, there was dogs barking and men shouting or whatever. We marched and marched and marched and we were actually caught by the Iraqi security services. Um, but I think the guides we were with who were armed, uh, said to them, you know, uh, you know, we can give you a hundred dollars to fuck off or we can get into it. And they were kind of patriots. And so they were like, yeah, of course, just, just go on. Cause of course, like kind of while Rojava is opposed by Kedepe, the leading force in Iraqi Kurdistan, they're generally very popular among the populace, even among kind of the security services. There. Ah, right. And so, yeah. And then we, uh, that was it we got there very good and and so and and so the the way back obviously was more complicated 
the way and, back was actually. And if you could also we're... tell us why you, you know, at what point did you decide to leave, Stefan? What was your motivation for going back? Because I mean, um, you know, was it like something that you wanted? You decided you were gonna, you decided already you were gonna spend a limited time, or was it a decision you made on the ground? Um, my mother had a very serious uh, medical incident, or whatever, and so I left because of that. Mm. Um, I was planning the initial plan was to get there maybe in january and then to leave in maybe september to be able to go back and do my masters um but i kind of missed that date because i i only got there in april um as well as there being like a conflict in iraqi coast which closed the airports and then it, having gone past the beginning of the academic year i was like you know I, I may as well stay here for another year until the next academic year because what the fuck am i going to do in europe and you know i'd found kind of like a fulfilling and structured life there um but yeah because of the, the the situation with my mother i uh i left and went back to the uk the security stuff of getting out of out of syria and into iraq was actually much easier um at this point but then obviously when i got back to the uk i was then confronted by the security services of the uk they picked you up at the border or they came to your house how did it go so you asked about heathrow but um i actually flew to bristol because I thought the security services there would be of a lower quality. <laughs> no, it's a city filled with hipsters. Like that place will be crawling with hipster sellouts. How how <laughs> how were the Bristolian <laughs> security services? Well, I, I met the whole Syria office. Um, oh. Just the, the the two of them, and uh, it was interesting talking <laughs> to them. Obviously, because I was asking them like, if you had any of my lot before, if you just had like ISIS people. And they said, we haven't had any ISIS going back, but we've stopped quite a few people trying to join ISIS going. And we've, we've talked to them. And so, yeah, it was obviously an interesting experience for them. Um, the, the kind of the very nerdy one was, was disappointed because I kind of, I didn't, I explained less about my crossing over the border than I've explained to you guys now. And I made it out to be very boring. And he was like a, a border crossing expert. So he was really, he was really quite sad. And disappointed <laughs> that I hadn't out I hadn't outlined this to him. Um but yeah basically you know I I got to the kind of the, the gate of the airport like the you know after you show your passport to the machine or a person though I can't do that anymore and the machine just doesn't work for me. I have to use the person. Mm. Um I kind of presumably deliberate because your passport's been marked, right? Yeah. And um yeah, I went out there and I was kind of stopped by quite a lot of people in plain clothes. They kind of confiscated my electronics and then they took me for a interview. They actually kept my laptop and my phone, which sometimes like that, like if you take someone's phone and laptop of you and there isn't someone waiting for them at the airport and it's night, they can just be completely fucked. Um, yeah. But the police, because I'm a, a nice, you know, middle class white person. I just drove me to my friend's house. No, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess yeah. If you had been uh, suspected of joining ISIS, the <laughs> the outcome would have yeah, been yeah. pretty different as well. Um, so, obviously, one of the interesting things with foreign fighters, uh, and often, you know, one of the quite problematic things is that networks of foreign fighters suddenly turn up elsewhere. So, actually, it'd be interesting in light of that to think about and to ask you whether you yourself keep in touch with uh, former volunteers. I mean, do you have, you know, do you have reunions? Do you have uh, some sense of, uh, yeah, of an actual network of, of veterans of, of that uh, fight there? 
Yeah, so generally the the former Yepage community is is quite close. It's recently had like a significant bit of drama over Ukraine. Um, for instance, one of our uh, our number Aiden, uh, as well as Sean Pinner, is currently up up for execution. In oh, the so they, they were YPG volunteers then. Sean Pinner and uh, Aiden Aslan were, and Aiden was was my friend. He's he's a really fun guy, um, and you know I help everything um, kind of work out. And that obviously kind of caused drama because lots of people that were informer were, were used to being Yepige were like, why the fuck was he? He wasn't in Azov, but he was kind of fighting alongside Azov in um, Mariupol. Like, why was he doing that? Well, other people were like, of course he's doing that. Like, he's defending Ukraine, like, back and forth. And a guy that was close to him, who's also like a Kurdish leftist, was like, stop fucking arguing. Like, I don't give a shit. What I care about is Aiden and all this other stuff, like, you know what matters is our lo- loyalty to each other more than any of our, mm. any of this other stuff, and what we need to focus on is trying to help Aiden and not whatever else, you know. But I mean, I guess that, that that's quite interesting already because it uh, hinted some of the, I guess, some of the dividing lines that there might be between someone who's um, ideologically sold on the kind of anarchist idea of Rojava versus someone who maybe just purely wants to fight someone who is interested in defending sovereignty or is maybe anti-Russian or whatever they might be. Um, so I guess I can yeah, kind of I, splinter I, I in think, different ways. I think lots of the motivations that people had to come to Rojava also work for going to Ukraine. Right. They, they obviously don't work for me, but it's not at all surprising to me that people have, have gone to Ukraine. Though actually most, I've seen quite a lot of friends on Facebook who've, who've gone to Ukraine but only a few of them are actually fighting. Um, for instance, this um, guy, he's like, he was a Tory councillor before he went, as well as like a stockbroker. And he's been quite use- useful for the Epigate cause because he, he knows like quite a lot of pol- parliamentarians. And so he's been like kind of a very useful lobbyist for, for the Epigate in the UK. He's been out in Ukraine for a while, um, just doing kind of um, like tourniquet training and emergency medical training for Ukrainian soldiers. Um, which, yeah, I don't know. I can't really complain about that. I don't think anyone can. So, like, I mean, that's fascinating. I, as to the war itself, I guess, and kind of more turning to your analysis rather than your kind of personal experience in, in fighting in, in Syria, um, it's interesting to, I guess, note some of the parallels, but also some of the contrast between Syria and Ukraine. I mean, both are major proxy wars involving Russia and NATO powers on opposite side, um, as well as the presence of international volunteers, which you've already mentioned. Um, I guess there's some to draw out some of the contrast and see what you think of this. Uh, is that in Syria, you know, the um, the, um, the Kurdish forces had U.S. air air power on their side, um, whereas in this war, all the kind of tech seems to favor the Russians in terms of their uh, artillery dominance over the Ukrainians. So how does that play out, especially in terms of, um, you know, volunteers for the Azov battalion or whatever? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's been a big thing. You have these absolutely kind of like, just dreary posts by, well, not posts, like kind of statements by Western volunteers who wanted, who were very enthusiastic about going to Ukraine at the start of the fighting, you know, saying like, because of those like stuck tank columns near Kiev, they're like, oh, target rich environment, blah, blah, blah. Like we're going to be able to destroy. Because obviously for kind of like an American kind of patriotic soldier, the idea that you can go and fight and kill Russians in like direct combat is obviously going to be like, 
that's like the fucking that's the real shit like mm. we're fucking around with all this other fucking bollocks with arabs or whatever but now we get we get to really get at them you know um but now obviously they've had to face the reality that kind of russian the russians are the ones that have air superiority artillery superiority and that kind of ukrainian elite units have been torn up very quickly and so that often these western volunteers will be posted with ukrainian conscripts or ukrainian territorial defense forces who've been given like a few weeks of training often like heavily unarmed underarmed and um kind of just not kind of fit for anything but holding positions and they'll complain that kind of you know not only are we getting pounded by artillery constantly but then kind of the unit to our left of us will just go wanders or will run away and they'll just be like a hole in our line and we'll we keep getting enveloped and stuff like that so yeah i think it's been kind of um a sharp wake-up call but i think actually for people who've been i think probably the kind of the best experience that anyone a western volunteer could have got for what was happening in ukraine is those few western volunteers who were in afrin uh defending right. it against the turkish invasion they were kind of people who weren't leftists who did that well, one thing we haven't spoken about is the level of experience that some of these volunteers might have because i guess it ranges from effectively professional mercenaries all the way down to someone who might not only not have combat experience but have no aptitude for it really either and might be there more in a propaganda role or whatever um and i wonder how that plays out also in in ukraine whether some of the foreign fighters there from the knowledge that you might have about it whether there's a different class of people or the different you know in terms of their combat experience also i wanted i mean i'll throw something else into the pot which is i've read reports i mean i don't know how credible they are they they seem to me to have it to be at least plausible, if not, um, you know, if not, uh, if there's any way to authenticate them. But the, you know, that those kind of special U.S. special forces volunteers or Western special forces volunteers with the Ukrainian army and their experience has generally been very different. You know, kind of deserts and mountains, Afghanistan and Iraq calling in kind of, you know, sneaking up and calling in airstrikes and being kind of um, on the receiving end of an artillery barrage or with kind of lots of heavy conventional weaponry around, then it's an entirely different experience and has been, and they've, you know, kind of um, had great difficulty adapting or succeeding. Um, how, what do you make of those kinds of stories and have you heard anything um, in that line as well? I mean, are you asking about the, the reports that there's regular US forces fighting alongside the Ukrainians? Both, I mean, regular, but also like, um, you know, people kind of volunteers who have military experience, but kind of military experience of fighting, not in Afrin, but kind of, you know, I don't yeah, know, yeah, Afghanistan I mean, that's, or whatever. That's what I was trying to get across in, in what I was saying in the previous right, thing yeah. that, yeah, for Western volunteers and also for, for Western Special Forces, it, it's completely true that there's kind of regular US Special Forces who are part of the US military right now engage in combat operations in Ukraine. And if they're killed, they then become volunteers, you know, uh, retroactively. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's what I was, I was trying to get across that for kind of the experience that these Westerners have will is often not that useful because kind of they're, they're on the complete opposite end. But that's still kind of I think that the Ukrainians, from what you can hear, like they're, they're very kind of praiseworthy of these guys. And also the thing is they are now getting this experience. And so it will really give the, the West at least a few of these proper full spectrum soldiers who are experiencing kind of all, all forms of warfare. Right, yeah. On, on military experience in Rojava, and obviously, yeah, like, for instance, I, I obviously had absolutely no military experience and most of, nearly all the leftists did, though some, some did. 
for instance, there was kind of uh, an anarchist guy that who used to be a, a junior officer um, and stuff like this. But I, I didn't at all. But it was interesting kind of you're saying that, you know, you might end up there and you might have no combat aptitude at all, not necessarily because kind of you were lied or because you were deluded or whatever, but just because how, how could you really know? But the interesting thing is, I think we, by whatever thing, we, we'll, we self-selected very well. Um, for instance, when, when the Turkish military conducted airstrikes in the position next to ours, um, and we were kind of woke up by the bombing and we were taken out of our place. And then this is before we'd received any military education at all. And we were kind of, we, but all nine of us, veteran and non-veteran, were, were kind of basically completely calm, responded effectively to the orders we were given and did exactly what we were told. I think we self-selected very well. And I think mm. one of the reasons might be for this is because to get to Rojava, you have to, it's, it's, it's very hard to get there, right? You can't just catch a plane. You have to be very stubborn and dedicated just to get there. And I think this kind of picks out and, and you know, separates the wheat from the shaft before you even get there. Right. Yeah. Well, obviously, the thing with the Ukrainian volunteers is at the start, at least, though quickly, very, very quickly, Ukraine tamped down on it, is that you could just fly to Poland and get like a train or a bus. And you were in like completely legally without having to do any crazy border operation, without having to get approval from the Ukrainian government or military directly. You could just turn up in Ukraine. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess that, yeah, that certainly makes a difference. And it's quite interesting to think about that in terms of actually, yeah, the kind of access to, to what is actually a, a war zone. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and, and not so much, you know, in reference to your own experience, but uh, one thing that uh, you've written, which is due to come out at some point, we're going to check and uh, try to include that in the show notes, uh, is that, you know, that this appears to be a war between Russian hard power and Western soft power. I mean, that despite the fact that uh, that Western powers are obviously funneling weapons uh, to Ukraine. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, so obviously I I kind of, you know, showed off earlier that I predicted the war, but I was completely wrong about what would happen. I noticed, note in this article that kind of what we expected and what included myself in this is that kind of Russian hard power would crush the Ukrainian military in a few days, in a few weeks or whatever, they would take over Ukraine. Then the West would respond with devastating economic sanctions on Russia, which would completely cripple it. And then combined with an irregular insurgency in Ukraine would force Russian occupiers to leave. But this analysis has been basically false in every way. It's almost so wrong that if you just reversed it, it would be true. <laughs> the Russian military has failed essentially to complete its goals, which is not to say it's lost, but it's failed to complete its goals and it will never complete, I think it's clear to me, its original goal, which is capturing the whole of Ukraine and, and engaging in, in regime change. Do you really think that was the goal? Because I'm not convinced that it was. Um, what makes you say that? Um, the fact that they thrusted to Kiev with two thirds of their forces. Um, there's not really any reason. And, you know, kind of the operation was kind of clear what they were going to do and they engaged in the first stages of it. Um, they had, they landed a, a, an airborne company or two in Homestel to secure it. And then they were, they had three air, bri air brigades, which Homestel is a, a small airport, well, not, but it's quite a large airport in a town just north of Kiev. Um, and then we're going to air brigade three battalions of kind of um, mechanized paratroopers into there and immediately thrust for the city center of Kiev on the very first day of combat 
capture it and then hope the kind of Ukrainian government collapsed. But the paratroopers managed to take Homestol, but due to they weren't able to push out of Homestol and kind of secure the area around it and stop Ukrainian fire on the airport. So the airlift, uh, the air bridge of, of several Russian uh, mechanized brigades was canceled. And they instead thrusted with the majority of kind of their armored forces into try and take Kiev and got stuck in the mud and pissed up the wall and, and did shit. And the thing is, by focusing so much, I think the operation, which is now the Russians are conducting, or any, or even more the kind of the grandiose plan, which was to thrust for Kharkiv, uh, Krakow, Kharkov, uh, thrust for Kherson, and then do kind of like a, a massive encirclement around the Donbass, yeah. which would, instead of having to directly, because what, what now Russia is doing is it's had to go through the kind of the defensive lines that the Ukraine has built up over eight years. It's just going directly mm. through them. And that, at first, that causes them quite horrendous casualties. And now it's just very slow going because the Russians have take, engaged in kind of the classic strategy of using massive artillery to destroy everything in their path, advancing 500 meters and then doing the same. Um, but if kind of they hadn't had two thirds of their forces pissing about in the fucking mud in the north, they could have done their plan of encircling Donbass and avoiding having to assault these front lines. Because it did work in Kherson. They took Kherson uh, Oblast basically without a fight yeah. with kind of only a small force. If two-thirds of their forces hadn't been in the north trying to capture Kiev, they could have done the same in, in Kharkov and they could have encircled the Donbass while having some kind of small force in the north to try and hold the Ukrainians in place there. But they never, I mean, there was never, you know, the size of the armed forces were never great enough to occupy all of Ukraine. So presumably, I mean, so I've seen, I mean, what you say is convincing about the fight over the airport. Um, I did see reports, you know, that the kind of thrust towards Kiev was, uh, was a feint in order to hold down Ukrainian forces while they, you know, kind of um, mopped up in Donbass. But like you say, the kind of encirclement isn't going well and the forces deployed to Kiev were significant, you know, more than a feint. Um, so, I mean, it's, yeah, it's interesting to hear your, it's very interesting to hear analysis of it. Um, I guess moving, moving on to talk a bit more about the volunteers, um, and you've mentioned this already, but what do you make of the, um, the YPG volunteers who've joined the Ukrainian armed forces? Like if you take, think of their political motivations, it's kind of, um, revulsion with kind of aggression um and a desire to kind of you know fight for um you know it's a clear case where there's kind of an aggressor and a victim would that be it well the interesting thing with aiden specifically who is my friend and who i knew best and can kind of speak to his uh personal motivations is that he went to ukraine in 2018 um and joined the irregular kind of um us uh, not us <laughs> ukrainian marine battalion so he was never in Azov, was never associated with any kind of volunteer unit, but was a regular soldier of the Ukrainian military. And of anyone that's been accused of being a mercenary um, by Russia and the Donetsk People's Republic, it's the least true in, in this case. And yeah, I think he was just a guy who kind of enjoyed military life. Um, he was a guy that was convinced by, he wasn't, he didn't go out there as a political volunteer, but was convinced by the political system of Rojava not as kind of like a socialist endeavor, but as kind of like a, a liberal democratic endeavor in a region which didn't really have this, like a multi-ethnic uh, endeavor with kind of a, a religious toleration, this kind of thing. 
And it's interesting, I read an interview from Aidan uh, where he said in a 2020 interview that the Ukrainian military should not go on offensive in Donbass, that the issue should instead be resolved peacefully through negotiations with like a Minsk three or whatever. Uh, and which just makes it kind of more more of a shame of, of yeah. that he ended up there anyway. Um, so yeah, I don't think he kind of had any, uh, you know, negative motivations, and it was instead based on yeah this kind of uh, idea of Russian of Russia as an aggressor. Uh, but yeah, obviously, I think he kind of the, the case is obviously <laughs> a lot 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 no, lot sure. less clear cut than he probably thought it was. So and off the bat, I mean, and this I guess is asking you to kind of fan out, I guess, from your both um, off the back of your personal experience, but also with respect to your analysis of Ukraine, how how important or effective do you think volunteers are to shoring up a side in a war? And how might we, I guess, related to that, how might we judge their military effectiveness? Well, the thing in Rojava is that kind of we were never a large number. And instead, kind of our influence and importance was as propaganda, but not in kind of like a, a very narrow point where like as if we were just kind of spectacles which never engage in fighting. It was the fact that people fought and fought, fought and died was the propaganda. What Yepige wanted to kind of communicate, especially with its leftist volunteers, is that the Kurdish struggle, the struggle of, of Yepige, of, of PYD, was not a narrow Kurdish struggle. And instead, this was a, a struggle for the Middle East, a struggle for, for peace, for democracy, for socialism. And they wanted to demonstrate that kind of socialist internationalism was something that was still alive. Uh, and that's, I think, why lots of people went there. People went there even if they weren't particularly convinced, like leftists that weren't particularly convinced of um, the Rojava political system, like Marxist-Leninists and so on, but wanted to kind of show that, yes, even if they aren't communists, they even even they aren't common internationalists we are common internationalists yeah and that we'll take part in this anti-fascist uh, national struggle do you think that was successful kind of looking back i mean do you think that 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 message got across yeah to, to some degree at least like it showed since social internationalism isn't dead but it's yeah. pretty close to being dead like if you compare <laughs> us our numbers to the isis numbers it's mm. just like on a different scale yeah. Like, oh, like kind of global Islam versus global socialism. Uh, global Islam is like yeah. a, a thousand times ahead. So the question is whether you ever met someone from the other side in Syria, which is to say whether, you know, either in Syria or since Syria, you've met anyone who was um, a Western Islamist um, or even maybe sympathetic to the Western Islamists, um, you know, who supported ISIS or went wanted to support ISIS in some way or other. Um, and, you know, if you've kind of ever had an, any interaction with them and how far you think nihilism factors in their worldview, because, I mean, this, you know, it was it's a criticism that was made of um, Islamic jihadism, ISIS, that they're nihilists. It was a criticism that, you know, that I've uh, taken up myself and it seems to me convincing. So I was curious. I've never interacted with them, but for the book, I was reading um, kind of biographies of them, of specifically of British volunteers. And I did find it very interesting that in some ways they were kind of the same sort of people that had gone to Rojava in certain ways. And the fact that they were kind of lost young men who then found something to latch onto. And yeah, it's, it's quite strange with ISIS that in one hand, they're kind of hyper reactionary. 
you know they like minted gold coins and stuff like this absolutely yeah. kind of like ridiculous kind of things that are historically buried but they're trying yeah. to dig up in in a completely pointless way while on the other hand they're kind of this hyper modernist cutting edge um like with incredible like social media like you know school shooters wish they could be them you know yeah this, this kind of like yeah. typified american nihilist has nothing on something like the islamic state who kill and die specifically it's not just that they kill but they're incredibly willing to die themselves yeah um that yeah that, that makes them kind of that marks them out as kind of i think a very fascinating part of of kind of contemporary western nihilism and this i say western nihilism because often the most enthusiastic killers and dyers were not locals yeah but were yeah. either people from the west or people from the gulf states yeah. who are very interesting in the fact that kind of they're these developed economies yeah they're westernized essentially who have gone like you know they've skipped kind of the middle and they've gone straight from kind of like their, their grandfathers were literally kind of like feudalist herders you know to then them being thrown into this incredibly hyper modern capitalist society consumer on, capitalism yeah, yeah. yeah. On, on the top end of it and them going like oh no i'm gonna actually go to to syria and kill myself in a car bomb these yeah. incredibly privileged sons of kind of the Saudi feudal elite. So, I mean, is there, do you have, I mean, is there anything more in the kind of the nihilism of Islamist reaction versus the nihilism that drives kind of young men to go fight for Ukraine or to go fight for Rojava? Is it fairly contingent or do you think there's kind of an element that there is still kind of, I mean, presumably, you know, you had humanists for all your nihilism, you had humanist motivations in a way that somebody, you know, who went to kind of rape and murder on behalf of the Islamic State didn't. I mean, I think, I think it is, it is kind of like a drive for meaning, for something coherent, for something structured, uh, I think, in kind of all these volunteers. I think that's why lots of people who, you know, people that who kind of left Rojava and, and gone to Ukraine went often for kind of just this structured military life, as opposed to going back to the UK. That's why I went back to the UK and after being in Rojava in this strict communist, like war, war, like barracks communism life, and I, I go back to the UK, I remember I went, I went into a Tesco soon after I was back and there was just all these like different varieties of products that I could buy. And I was just like, I was absolutely disorientated and just like, I ended up just walking out the store without buying anything. I've just, because I, I just, I'd lost the mentality. And yeah, I think the people are, are driven by nihilism. Like kind of, they're driven by kind of a desire to escape nihilism by yeah. joining the Islamic State, by joining the Ukraine military, by, by joining Epigate. Mm. But that means, that doesn't mean that you can then, you can look for an escape for nihilism, but then join a group which in itself is nihilistic. Yeah. yeah, I think that's, yeah. I think that's going to happen. Like, for instance, like with 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 anarchist street fighters um, in places like Greece, well, you're driven by kind of like a desire to escape, kind of Western nihilism, but because this is all you've known, you then kind of reproduce them yeah. without kind of like the the beacon of socialism or, or something like this being able to call you in a different direction. All right, listener, that's the end of the free show. You will catch the rest of it on Patreon, where we're discussing Syria, energy, how close we are to a world war, as well as things like the racial sheriffs and privilege police. That's over on patreon.com slash bungacast. We hope to see you there. If you've enjoyed this, uh, hit follow wherever you're listening to your podcast, and also maybe drop us a review, if you would be so kind. All right, catch you later. Bye-bye.